0: Blog talk radio. Hello, uh, this is Gigabit Nation Broadband Talk Radio. I'm your host, Craig Settles, and I want to thank you for taking time to be with us today as we provide useful information and insights to help public, private, and nonprofit organizations get more, better broadband everywhere it needs to be. Um, we cannot say enough About the importance of schools, libraries, and healthcare uh, facilities, and other anchor institutions, when it comes to driving broadband adoption uh, and also uh, shrinking the digital divide. Uh, One of the leading organizations uh, that has programs and awareness campaigns that have made great inroads in. Um, into the uh, anchor institutions um, across the country is the uh, Schools, Health, and Library um, Broadband Coalition. And John Winhauser, who is the uh, Shelby Executive Director, is going to be here today to talk about um, a number of campaigns that they have and uh what we ex- should expect from them in the upcoming months, so John, welcome back to the show. Well, thank you, Craig. It's a pleasure to be here. Cool. um actually, John has been here before um, and, uh, and and I also like call on John from time to time to get his uh insights on stuff that's going on and has a very good perspective on. Uh, those anchor institutions. Uh, so what guy, What things have you guys been up to in the last eight, nine months? Because you've been very busy,
1: I've noticed. Well, we sure have. Uh, and I appreciate you giving us this uh, chance to talk about them, Craig. Um, so the oh. most recent activity was we released about two weeks ago our um, – uh, anchor Institution Broadband Action Plan. And this was mm-hmm. a really exciting but uh, um, uh, uh, endeavor where we put out several papers discussing all of the different policy topics and policy levers that uh, federal, state, and local governments can use to help to promote broadband for anchor institutions. So we mm-hmm. know that there are a lot of well-meaning policymakers out there that want to do good, that want to promote broadband, uh, but sometimes they are turning to uh, others to say, well, look, what is it that we can do? Um, So we thought it would be useful to put together uh, these papers that are hopefully appealing across all uh, political stripes um, because there's no uh, one size fits all approach here. There are really a whole lot of different ideas that um, uh, are being used and tried uh, with effectiveness. And we thought it would be useful to try to, um, identify, all, identify those policy ideas, but also give some real-world case studies and examples of how these uh, ideas are putting into, uh, into motion, uh, and then issue some recommendations for policymakers about what they can do. Um, mm-hmm. You know, this all goes back, in our view, it goes back to the National Broadband Plan in 2010 that called for anchor institutions in every community to have gigabit connectivity. Uh, and we've made a lot of progress on that score over the last six years with the BTOF program and the E-rate changes from 2014. Um, but we still have a way to go. Uh, and the, the action plan is really uh, intended to help carry the ball across the goal line and, and encourage uh, policymakers and anchor institutions to finish the job and get everybody that connectivity in the next four years uh, so we can mm-hmm. meet that goal Getting gigabit connectivity by 2020. So that's really okay. the, the biggest feature, the, the most recent activity, and this is all under our banner that we've um, established called Grow to Gig Plus. Uh, so we're going to continue to roll out additional ideas and events and papers, uh, all with the goal of trying to promote gigabit connectivity uh, for anchor institutions.
0: Okay. So now um, there were policy documents. Do you want to talk about a couple of those topics? I mean, I'm assuming that each one deals with a different aspect of anchor institutions and how they can facilitate broadband adoption?
1: Yeah, so uh, we actually start, and before we get into the 10 policy papers, we started with a vision paper Uh, that talked about why is broadband for anchor institutions so important. Um, And that, we thought, was a good place to start because that describes the benefits of broadband for educational opportunity, uh, for civic engagement, for economic growth, for telemedicine. Um, So the vision paper sets out the goal of what we want to achieve, and then the 10 policy papers identify the tools that you can use in order to reach those goals. So the, those tools are really all across the board. So, for instance, you asked for me to just to identify a couple. So one would be rights-of-way enforcement. Um, this is a, 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 a really important issue. It's really in the weeds uh, in some ways because you're dealing with the cost of deploying fiber on telephone poles or digging up the streets. Uh, so it's not all that sexy, but it is incredibly important And I think Google and Kansas City showed us how having an actively engaged city government working with the private sector to manage the rights of way can be really useful to speed deployment. And now you see a lot more cities uh, adopting rights of way statutes, like uh, in Louisville, Kentucky, um, just adopted a new statute to streamline their uh, use of the the telephone poles, and that was a good development. We're we're encouraging other communities, every community around the country, to adopt that kind of streamlined approach. So Mm rights-of-way enforcement is a big one. Um, I know you've asked about broadband adoption. That's also an important characteristic. Uh, Our view is that if you can uh, involve the anchor institutions, uh, can be a really important ally in trying to increase broadband adoption and broadband subscribership. For a number of reasons. First, if you build to the anchor institution, then you can extend the signal out from the school or library to the rest of the community. So the residential community ideally can benefit from that fiber build to the library or the school. So they get Mm -hmm. facilities available. That's one benefit. And then another is just, you know, the kids go to school and learn about the value of the Internet, and then they bring that home and they help to train their parents um, and help them understand why it's so important. The same at the library. The libraries have a lot of uh, digital literacy trainers that provide uh, help in navigating uh, the Internet, knowing how to subscribe, and then people feel more comfortable taking it home. So we've found that when the anchor institutions have better broadband connections, the more likely it is that the residential community is going to sign up to for their own broadband connection at home. hmm
0: and that's been, um, you know, consistent in a number of reports and books that I have written on the subject. Where, um, you know, if we use it in, in sort of in the marketing terminology, um, the anchor institutions mm-hmm. represent a um, a number of marketing partners, and in their use and Getting people from the community engaged, whether it be at the, the library or the schools, and to a certain extent to the the healthcare um, uh, facilities, um, that when you when you plan it correctly correctly, um, you you have a very um, healthy marketing uh, activity. And that's, uh, you know, so it's more like talking in the the, uh, terminology of the marketing world. Uh, You basically, these are all marketing partners, in essence. And the end result is that you get a greater increase of adoption or customers. Um, And as people are trying to uh, figure out where they're going to go, the anchor institutions need to be a key part of the planning, wouldn't you say?
1: Uh, absolutely right. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's an ecosystem, and um, uh, it, it involves the anchor institutions. It involves um, uh community organization. It involves the industry. It involves government leaders. Um, usually, people don't subscribe to broadband for just one thing. Uh, or it's just not one, There's, you know, I know there was has been talk about, well, what's the killer app? And, um, you know, I, I don't know that that's the right way to analyze it, because for uh, an elderly person, they may want to use their broadband connection for um, health benefits and telemedicine activities. A young person might want to use it for social media engagement. Um, you know, an entrepreneur may want to use the Internet for developing uh, or doing research about how to develop their own business. So there are a variety of different uses and there are a variety of different ways that people find the Internet to be valuable to them. And the anchor institutions are, by their very nature, intended to serve the diversity of the human experience and the population. So schools and libraries and and health providers, uh, just by the fact that they serve the general public, they're already missioned to... Um, provide a variety of different services and advice and um, uh, to that population. So they're a, a great facilitator. One of the w- words that we use is uh, that the anchor institutions are the gateway to the community. And we mm-hmm. really take that uh, uh, you know, literally uh, because you can learn so much about the population in a community by just going to the library and seeing who it is that's using the computers or going to the school and, seeing the makeup of the children and the students and the parents who are there, it really gives you a window on what that um, community is like. And then you can design a broadband strategy around the needs of that community. Uh, And it's, you know, it's go to the anchor institutions. You can learn a whole lot about um, not just their needs, but the needs of the community as a whole.
0: Now are there certain
1: communities
0: that have stood out in your mind for their ability uh or their expertise at um, understanding their anchor institutions and fitting out uh, fitting in uh some sort of program
1: that involves
0: those anchor institutions
1: Well let's see uh, one answer to that would be I'm very impressed with the cities that are appointing their own digital inclusion uh, director. So mm-hmm. Seattle, for instance, and Seattle, Washington, and Charlotte, North Carolina, and Boston, Massachusetts. Those are three examples that I know of. I'm sure there are more. But in each state or each city has identified a, a, a single a person whose job it is to promote digital literacy and to promote greater broadband connectivity. Um, mm-hmm. And and these uh, three people, uh, I've met all three of them, and, and what makes them really special is they realize they can't do it alone, that they need to work with partners, and oftentimes it's the community anchor institutions that are really well-positioned in order to provide that support. Um, you know, I attended the conference of, of the uh, National Digital Inclusion Alliance Conference in Kansas mm-hmm. City earlier this oh, yeah. year, and it was hosted at the Kansas City Public Library. Um, They hosted the event, they brought in all of the community groups from around the, not just the city, but around the state, and the mayor of Kansas City came and and spoke and talked about the importance of digital inclusion, and and now the library is looking at this next generation of what can it do to actually um, put together a digital inclusion plan that would involve all of the different uh, anchor institutions and community organizations in that city in order to address those needs. So yeah, the anchor institutions are, are key and, and those cities that are really um uh, activating their anchor institutions to be involved, they're gonna be the ones that lead the pack.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, um I'm you know, I was I was going as, as you were listening or as you were explaining this. Um and I think that uh also um Ch- Chattanooga uh, Wilson, Lafayette—those um, cities that have the longest track record of broadband, uh, community broadband activities—they um, have done, I think, also a good job at um, working with their various anchor institutions. You know, I remember I had actually um, an interview with the library director. In Chattanooga, and she talked about how, in the early days of their network, and even a few days, a few years before that, the the library was, in essence, the the technology center for that community. And you know, we don't we don't really think about libraries in that role, but that's kind of where they are. And if we sort of look at, I think, some of the other cities, um, you know, New York, with their program of giving away mobile um, access points, uh, you know, Chattanooga, you know, what's going on in um, Kansas City and so forth, uh, they're, they're definitely um, some good examples. And I think that the key thing is, um, is that People need to realize that the anchor institutions are good reference points, and when you have cities that are just now starting to explore broadband, you know some of the best people I think that they can talk to are the anchor institutions of those cities that have um, active. Uh, broadband uh, uh, programs would
1: you would you say well i totally agree yeah i mean if you look at how libraries are changing their mode of operation more so than ever um it's really been a, a huge transformation of libraries as a not just a storehouse of knowledge but Um, libraries are now much more engaged with their community and interactive and reaching out to the community beyond the library walls. And they're using Mm -hmm. their broadband connections in order to do that. Um, So it's really fascinating to see. I love the idea of um, having free Wi-Fi available uh, Mm -hmm. and extending off of the networks uh, serving the library. Um, So, for instance, I could imagine – a situation where you get your your Wi-Fi brought to you by your local public library, not just in the library but throughout the whole city because Mm -hmm. the technology is being developed now where you've got these white spaces channels and sort of super Wi-Fi that operate over a different set of frequencies, but then it allows you to extend that that signal from the, the library or from the school or from the church tower or whoever it is that has the fiber running into it and then you put one of these antennas on the roof and broadcast out to the, the rest of the community so it allows everybody to get free Wi-Fi. And I think that's the direction that we're headed in. So it's not just that the anchor institution is providing knowledge, but it actually provides, a, from a technological perspective, it provides a central aggregation point that makes the deployment of these networks a lot cheaper and it can be done much, much more cost-effectively by building to an aggregation point like an anchor institution, and then distributing the signal wirelessly from there. Mm-hmm.
0: The um, oh, I got lost lost for a second. With the um, healthcare uh, aspect, have we uh, seen the the healthcare institutions? be on par with the libraries and schools as a driver of broadband. Because I know that that health care facilities use the uh, technology internally, you know, to make everything from, you know, tracking equipment and so forth to, uh, you know, uh, sending out MRIs and all of that. But have they gone beyond that in terms of being a um, a uh, broadband adoption vehicle?
1: Well, I, I, my sense is uh, not as much as they can in the future and will in the future. Um, mm-hmm. The obviously the health industry is its own has its own bureaucracy, um, and it's 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 a different animal where they, they have their own rules. But I can tell you that one of the um, benefits of broadband is very clearly that you can save a lot of money, you can reduce healthcare costs and provide better quality health care by using telemedicine when it's up and running and when it's available. But there are a lot mm-hmm. of components to making that happen. So first, as you mentioned, the consumer himself or herself has to have a high enough quality bandwidth connection, broadband connection into the home. Um, and that that's a, an essential ingredient, but that's not the only ingredient. You then also need the equipment mm-hmm. to provide that remote patient monitoring at the consumer's home. You need to have it uh, received, the signal to be received at the hospital, uh, and uh, they need to be able to monitor what's going on uh, with that individual's uh, connection and monitor their health quality on on an ongoing basis. Um, And then you also need uh, the Medicare uh, laws to uh, be reformed in order to allow for that service to be um, reimbursed. And this is one of the biggest barriers right now is that that this is a state-by-state decision. And a few states have allowed uh, these telemedicine services to be reimbursable, but most states have not. And so that's mm-hmm. a big drag on the use of telemedicine. I think there's changes coming, and I think it's it's moving in the right direction, but it's moving very slowly, and that's unfortunate because you know people's health could be significantly improved if they could take advantage of these telemedicine options. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, one of the things um, I, I just think your your um, idea or your your feedback on this. Um, there was a city that I was working with at one point that, uh, one of the, um, hospitals, uh, it wasn't actually located in the city, but they, they were, they was in your small town. So they're, you know, they write one town over and they had this idea of, um, creating a wireless umbrella. That would only be used by the patients and uh, people who want to be patients of this hospital, so that the the umbrella would be fairly inexpensive to um, to create, um, you know because we're talking wireless versus wired. Um, and it would it would allow the uh, hospital to uh, you know, keep their their customers, as it were, uh, close at hand, and help to you know um, the help customer relations over time and so forth. Um, do you think that kind of a setup would be both practical and useful? In essence, a wireless intranet
1: just for your your
0: patients.
1: Well, that could be a hugely valuable. Um, I guess, you know, getting any, any way you get people connected is going to be better than having them disconnected. Um, yep. But I guess my question would be if you're going to go to all of the uh, trouble and expense of getting them connected to a private network, why not get them connected to the full Internet so that they can interact with our hospital and interact with, their healthcare providers or, uh, education and, um, you know, the government services and the full suite of internet-based activities.
0: Right. Um, I was thinking as a stepping stone, number one, but also mm-hmm. as a, as, 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 a customer relationship tool, um, you can basically, um, sell the, idea of an intranet but then you can easily migrate those people to the rest of the uh, network whether it be a wireless network or a city's fiber network or what have you but you know because one of the issues with broadband is this thing of relevancy A a lot of people who don't have broadband don't see it as being relevant so creating this intranet Um, And a fairly inexpensive cost allows people to say, well, you know, you get health information. You might have a laid line into your doctor, or at least, you know, medical personnel. Um, It's a reason for them being on the network. There's a value for the hospital of from a customer relations side uh, standpoint, and even a certain amount of treatment or. You know, uh, interaction between hospital medical staff and the, um, the 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 consumers, and you still have the ability to bring them into the bigger network over time.
1: Well, great and if you can bring them into the bigger network over time, then then fabulous, and if that transition is easy, then then great. Maybe that's the first. Um, kind of entree into a wireless broadband connection. Um, I think what – so that model as you've just described, uh, that makes some sense. Um, I think the other possibility, though, is that sometimes these providers like to have their own private networks, and Mm -hmm. those networks don't – aren't that – Uh, it's not that easy to move them over to a broader connection because they then become locked into that private intranet. Um, One of the recommendations coming out of this broadband plan and our action plan is that we like shared networks, Um, and we're trying to get away from the idea of silos where companies uh, create or programs that are dedicated to a single set of uses and uh, tend to assume that nobody else can use their network when actually just the opposite is usually the case, that a fiber network can be shared with many, many other users and there's no problems with privacy or distortion or interference, uh, but it makes a more efficient use of that technology if it can be shared across platforms and with a lot of different users. So that's why I have a little bit of a knee-jerk uh, kind of uh, reluctance to talk about intranets because then if you build an intranet and people get locked into that that sole provider or sole source kind of system, then they become reluctant to expand beyond it. Uh, and that's right. you know one of the things that we're concerned about with the FCC's uh, Universal Service Fund programs, for instance. It has four different programs and you have to submit four different applications for each of those programs and they don't cross-pollinate very well. And we think that's a shame because you could use that universal service funding much more efficiently if you were allowed more sharing of these networks.
0: Right. Now now see from you know I agree exactly w- what you're saying. I'm sort of I'm looking at this sort of this idea of a of an internet is not to create a um a uh proprietary connection per se, but as a use as a way to move it from, from a uh, medical use to using the rest of the internet. So it say, you know, it's not encouraging the hospitals to create a wall or a silo, but say, hey, you know, we're planning to build a network. All right, we're going to do it, and it's going to try, you know, tie together the... Uh, the schools and the other anchor institutions, and you know the businesses and the eventual customers, right? And then we want to, but we want to, we want to explore this idea of a uh, intranet um, as a way to get people to use the, um, the 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 hospital as a reason to test. Broadband, or to did the city's network, or whatever. So, um, you know, I I agree. I agree that you want to make sure that you don't create another silo. But the idea is to think is to think of it as a part or as a way to move the the um, the customer base or potential uh, uh, um, pay base into some aspect of the network to then be introduced to other aspects. I mean, you can do the same thing uh, with the the libraries or the university where there is a specific um, uh, task or group that meets or, you know, some sort of um, activity, but the activity draws people in to say, you know, this is good stuff. You know, we should we should use that because otherwise we know, we have no desire to be on the web for, you know, downloading YouTube videos, you know, mm-hmm. but if I can go and I can, even if it's a, it's a way to get a group of seniors from across the, the city or the state or whatever, um, you create that place where people can say, oh, I'll I'll go in for this, right? This will have a reason, and maybe it's a free thing, right? So you don't have to be obligated. But then as the person gets comfortable, then you move them off and say, well, what about this opportunity or this uh, ability to use the Internet for this and then so forth, and then you kind of move them on because, you know, we seem to be having this issue of relevancy, and people aren't try. And people are having trouble trying to figure out how to solve the issue. And so this might be a way to both market uh, the network and also um, market those institutions that are on the network as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're mm-hmm. we're, still, we're talking about a, a general, um, you know, and the little blue sky kind of thing. But I think that, you know, pushing these kind of ideas around, and you know, at the next conference or the next meeting or webinar or whatever, you know, someone else will probably say, well, let, we can do this, but let's do it with this particular slant toward it and, and so forth. So, anyway. Yeah. Um, I get yeah. Little-
1: well, I mean, I would agree with the, uh, the concept uh, of getting people acclimated to the technology and provide, making it simple, providing them a real clear um, solution for a particular need as a way to get them more familiar with the technology. I think that makes sense. I just would suggest that that's best done as an app on the general internet uh, rather than trying to create no, a no, special great. closed network just for that particular mm-hmm. service.
0: Right. No, no, that, that makes sense. And um, I can see how that how that could work out very well actually. Um so now what are some of your plans for uh I don't know the next series of activities because you've got the campaign, the gig um campaign and then you have these um policy uh documents that you've created. What's next?
1: What well, my draft. <laughs> We've got a couple of things in the works, so um uh, in in' uh, we're, we're planning to hold an event in the fall and the looking at the end of October uh, focused on the e rate program um, mm-hmm. and we haven't talked about e rate too much on this call, but uh in two thousand fourteen the f c c made some pretty significant changes to the the e rate program and I know the, the amount of the funding gets a lot of attention, and that certainly was really a great development that the FCC added an additional $1.5 billion to the E-Rate program. So it's now up to about $4 billion per year for schools and libraries. Um, but the other set of changes were just as significant that the FCC made to the E-Rate program in that they allowed some new technologies to be eligible for E-Rate funding that weren't eligible in the past. So, for hmm. instance, they made dark fiber available and self-construction. Uh, and ma- managed wireless services. So these were services that give the school or library a little bit more control over their own destiny because now mm-hmm. they can choose to, to lease a dark fiber connection or build their own fiber connection, or they could, uh, instead of installing their own Wi-Fi routers, they could hire a third-party company to install the Wi-Fi routers for them, and that, that third party would manage it so they can outs- the school or library can outsource it. And now these three services um, uh, have just started to become e rate eligible uh, over the last couple of years. And so we're going to hold an event uh, gathering at the end of October in Washington, D.C., where we're based, uh, to explore, look, how are these rules working? Are, are schools and libraries actually taking advantage of them? Are they getting better technologies or not? And how could those programs be improved? It's our sense that in both of these cases, both for, uh, dark fiber and for managed wireless, that they provide some could provide some significant cost savings for schools and libraries um, in the future and also cost savings for the E-Rate program. But when you talk about building your own fiber, people would say, well, that's kind of counterintuitive, isn't it, because that, it's more expensive to build your own. And, and yes, it is at the front end. Uh, it does require greater funding for the installation, but I think what a lot of uh, fiber providers and schools and libraries are finding is that it lowers your costs after it's constructed because the operational mm-hmm. costs are much lower once you can run your own network. So that's a good option. And we really want to highlight those rule changes and help to foster that community of schools and libraries that are advancing to this next stage of t- their own technological growth. So that's one event we have coming up in the fall. And then um, the other uh, set of activities that's not quite uh, ready for prime time yet, but we're now preparing our next policy recommendations for whoever the next president is going to be. So in
0: Mm -hmm. other words,
1: our action plan has, I don't know, something like 100 different policy recommendations um, and and it's useful because it has such a broad variety that are um, useful for federal, state, and local policymakers. Now what we want to do next is develop a core uh, recommendation for the next president uh, to at the federal level what can they do what should their broadband policy be and we're trying to Mm -hmm. put some meat on the bones of that idea and and we'll we'll lay something out for the transition team right after the election Um, and then we'll be you know talking about do we commission some more research around that or not Uh, do we on different gatherings or events or press conferences. Those are still to be determined. Uh, So those are two things. And then there's a third thing, too, we're looking at, which is um, we're looking at trying to do some research around health and broadband. Just as you were mentioning, Craig, a few minutes ago, um, the FCC just rolled out a new map. I don't know if you had a chance to see that just a couple of days ago, that um, maps the overlay of broadband and health. Did you take a look?
0: I have not seen it, but I didn't even know about it until you talked about it.
1: Oh, well, it it is interesting. um, And I I think there are some pros and cons about it. Uh, Not really cons, but um, there are some advantages, but also some additional work that needs to be done. So this Mm -hmm. map that the FCC put out there is really pretty um, uh, interesting in that it it overlays your broadband connectivity on a county-by-county level and, um, maps that against uh, different chronic diseases and the prevalence of like obesity or um, uh, kidney disease or diabetes or other diseases. And you can see which of the counties that really lacking broadband and really lacking that have poor health uh, as a result. And maybe those are the target areas for future investment. So it could be a useful way to provide information to entrepreneurs who might be looking for ways to try to solve these, uh, health problems through technology. So that could be really useful. Uh, on the other hand, it's more of a consumer focused approach. And the Shelby Coalition is more focused uh, on the broadband availability to the um, health institutions themselves. So the health clinics, mm-hmm. the doctor's offices, uh, those are the institutions that we really focus our attention on. And I don't think the map really covers or measures. Their broadband connectivity. So, we're thinking mm-hmm. of doing some yeah. research around how to find out what kind of broadband connections are needed by rural health clinics um, and, and try to identify not just what their needs are, but how would health improve if they had better quality broadband connections. And then, what we want to do is take this research back to the FCC with some recommendations about how to improve the FCC's Healthcare Connect Fund. Um, The FCC adopted that Healthcare Connect Fund in 2012, but it really hasn't been um, as effective as it could be. It was intended to help drive greater broadband investment to rural health clinics, Um, but there have been some difficulties with that program, and uh, we filed a petition for rulemaking last December with the FCC proposing several ideas for reform of that Healthcare Connect Fund. Uh, The FCC has not has not moved forward on our petition yet. They did put it out for comment, and most of the commenters supported it, including the American mm-hmm. Health Association and the National Rural Health Association and him. Um but because of the crowded schedule that the FCC is dealing with, they haven't gone to the next stage of setting out a notice of proposed rulemaking, so mm-hmm. we're trying to provide some additional research that can then support moving forward on that. We'd still like to get it going this year, but if not this year, we'd like to to convince the FCC in the next administration to move forward on that health petition because we think a lot, a lot of good come could come out of improving that program and helping the money flow a little bit more smoothly. Hmm. So those are those are three things uh, uh, so far, and then of course we have our annual conference next May um, as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Now you know we were talking about uh, what the FCC is going uh, doing as far as a program. Um. How uh, could you take a couple minutes and talk about um a couple of other programs and different agencies um, that people should be aware of? Because what I'm what I'm sensing what I'm sensing okay is that you know I'm looking at uh you guys have you know these policy program documents. Um, there are FCC, uh, pro- programs, there's HUD with their programs that connect to home. It's like, th- there are now a whole lot of different, um, good efforts that, have, that address broadband. But can you kind of, you know, list a couple of those out? You know, what I'm looking at is that someone looking at uh, listening to this show later can say, Oh, I didn't realize that you know the, that the HUD has a program, or that some group over here didn't have a, have has a program, or whatever. I just have to get a little a little sense of what are some of the other things, other the other entities that are doing broadband. Uh, what are they doing, and you know that people should be aware of?
1: Well, you mentioned a couple of them. Um, already. So HUD it does have that Connect to Home program, which is a pretty interesting uh, program to address broadband adoption in housing projects. And mm-hmm. I think they've targeted 28 cities to start, and then they just announced with Comcast a new expansion of that program. Um, so I think that's very helpful. That's still uh, They're still trying to work through the logistics of um, uh, measuring their results from these 28 cities uh, to see what works best. Um, and it, to be honest, it is a difficult challenge because the FCC tried to, to look at some pilot programs a few years ago and the results were not all that promising. So, mm-hmm. um, and there are a variety of factors involved. So uh, I'm glad that, uh, that HUD is now taking this up, that they may have more levers that they can use with uh, Comcast in their Internet Essentials program to obtain better results. Um, but that's that's going to be an interesting program to watch. And, it, you know, the problems with the low-income community and broadband subscribership are very different. Um, it's not just a matter of, of the, the money. It's the training. It's the security. It's the, you know, not making sure that the technology is not a distraction uh, from school for children. Um so that that's that is, uh, but that's an important program, and I, I I think HUD is really taking it very very seriously, and is hopefully going to have some good results from that program. Um, mm-hmm. The other FCC program that we haven't mentioned yet is the Lifeline program, um, and of course, just a f- few months ago, the FCC adopted some reforms uh, to the Lifeline program and made broadband an eligible expense, so that consumers can now get a a subsidy, a $9.25 per month subsidy um, to uh, encourage them, or to hopefully to reduce the cost of broadband. Um, To be honest with you, I'm not uh, all that um, satisfied with the changes that the FCC made to the Lifeline program. Uh, Broadband Mm -hmm. is usually more expensive than telephone service, and yet they chose to use the same telephone subsidy uh, of $9.25, so they use the same amount for broadband. Um, and I, I question whether that's going to be enough of a discount off the cost of a monthly broadband connection to really provide that incentive for low-income consumers to subscribe. So I think there could be more work that needs to be done by the FTC uh, in the coming years in order to continue to work on that program. Um, another set of programs... Is, uh, are those uh, administered by the Rural Utility Service in the Department of Agriculture. Um, you know, they have those broadband mm-hmm. programs uh, where they provide loans, low-interest loans, uh, to promote broadband. Um, the challenge with those programs is that they have a strong uh, bias or preference in favor of the existing telephone companies, um, right. the existing borrowers of our US. So the way that program is designed, it's a little bit hard for a competitor or a new entrant to come into those markets, and um, so it's not designed uh, in a way that really can promote competition. Uh, And that's unfortunate because I think every area in this country deserves to have competitive choices for their broadband provider. So that's why we we really – oh, I'm sorry. I'll just say this, but that's why we really liked the BTOP program that was administered by NTIA. And that's, that's over and done now, uh, but one of the big uh, features of BTOP that made it successful is that they were able to award money to non-traditional providers. Uh, a lot of research and education networks were able to obtain that funding as well as some telephone companies and some new entrants as well. Uh, and they had to have an open interconnection policy. So that helps to facilitate greater shared use and, and competition of those networks. Mm -hmm. So um, just as a footnote, I saw in Hillary's Clinton's tech agenda, she mentioned the idea of more funding for BTOP, and that would be a great development. Yeah. (laughs) So it kind of goes against the grain. Most people think that uh, (laughs) BTOP has, has run its course, but if we could get some more funding for BTOP, I think that would be a great thing for America.
0: And I think that the thing that would be important is the issue of competition because, you know, the, that issue of, um, you know, dealing with only or primarily with the um, private sector um, is is very much unfortunate because there are cities and, and counties and co-ops that are doing some really good stuff and they're doing it at a good price and um, it's just, you get, I get really ex- exasperated by the whole thing and RUS probably more so um, than than BTOP. Uh, hopefully whatever they would do would not have the same time um, uh, acceleration that I think it was a big problem with this last thing because it was everything had to be done like in nine months, and it was just it was insane. It was an insane fire drill of just trying to meet the beat the clock, and you know, so it's one one more thing to kind of put in the you know in that in that document of recommendations, you know, do this fine but let's let's kind of like, you know, be reasonable in the um you know, with the process in terms of a timeline. So, that's my two cents, I guess. Yeah. Um, well, I agree. <laughs> now, I do have a question about lifeline um and, and again, you can tell me what your thoughts are uh But I've been a big proponent of if you're going to give the subsidy that you allow for communities to say, you know, I can either give 10,000 people a $10 a month subsidy, or I can aggregate all that money and I can build a wireless or fiber ring or or something Mm. that – would produce better rates, and would also be an asset that would that would stay within the community, and uh, I think you would overall have a better access to broadband than doing a subsidy program.
1: I mean, what what, what do you think about? That? I I think that's a great idea. I'm not sure the statutory language allows it, but I think Probably it's uh <laughs> <laughs> I think it's very worthwhile.
0: Because um, maybe at... Oh go so ahead. ahead. No no no, I was I was just gonna say you know, the same thing is that we um it opens up different um parameters because when you get that money collectively, you have more options that you can deal with it. Because you know that's a, it's a lot of money in the total amount, but once you divide it, you don't get anywhere near the 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 um the benefit.
1: I don't think. Well, that would be really interesting to to run a cost benefit analysis, uh, as you suggest. Um, right. Because there is a sense that uh, the existing Lifeline subsidy might help you with wireless connections, um, but it doesn't really do that much to help you with a wired fiber connection. And right. going forward, ultimately, everybody is really going to need to have a fiber connection to the home uh, in order to really take maximum advantage of everything the internet has to offer. So. Right. Um, I mean, mobile and wireless is fabulous, and it's growing, and the speeds are increasing, and that's great. But the speeds are not yet increasing nearly as uh, to match the the speeds you can get with fiber. So, um, So you know, that would be an interesting question would be to to add up all the money that you're, you're paying out through the Lifeline program to subsidize wireless. and. Could you take that money and use it to build a fiber network and provide free fiber-based service to everybody instead? And that would be an interesting dynamic. I don't know if the math works out, but that would be interesting to do that analysis to see.
0: Right, and I, I would think that you now, if you look at um, RS Fiber in Minnesota, okay, they're building a wired—I'm sorry—a wireless network that will give 25 meg symmetrical. While they're taking the three or four years to build the fiber network, right? But what that shows is that I can um, get people online at a rate that is reasonable and at a speed that is reasonable for the average person. And Mm -hmm. so, and it would definitely boost from where they are currently. And so if you think about it for a second, um, number one, when you talk about big cities, when you're talking about fiber to the home, it is a huge um, price tag that gets you into all kinds of uh, political storms. But if you use a approach of wireless at a lower rate but a re- really good speed um, while you build out the bigger uh, or the longer-term uh, network, you get short-term benefits that justify the cost and you're still working toward the the, the fiber down the road. Yeah, I yeah, that. that's why I'm-
1: Well, I kind of like that approach. Um, I usually take a slightly different approach but it's compatible, which is to say if you can't afford to get fiber to everybody's home, at least get the fiber into the anchor institutions in that neighborhood, and then you can build yeah. off of that, so at least every community has some place they can go to to get a fiber connection right
0: because um I had a um a meeting in uh
1: place like
0: in cali uh, San Leandro, and they have a gig network. And so I was at the a, a makerspace, uh, one of one of the one of them, and um, this guy was working on a uh, a router that or probably an access point that would deliver uh, three hundred megs, right? And and you think about it for a second. Okay, it is a wireless connection at huge speeds. Um, you know, with the limitations of you know distance is that it'll go to and so forth, but on the flip side, all of those people using that router in that maker space, um, it's a fairly good chunk and the, and the company that they're getting the, the you know the last mile of the connection to from uh, it, you know provides the, the router as a as a giveaway. Right. So it's like the economics of it is all, you know, when you look at, you know, the, the number of megs that it delivers, symmetric, uh, the, that the cost and, you know, and the cost of installation, um, it's a fairly cheap deal, but it's always based on having that fiber network, but at the same time, you don't have to have it in every actual uh, facility or
1: home. Right. Right. But you'd so leave to I, the community. Yes.
0: That, and that's, to mm-hmm. me, that's the uh, the key part. And so, and then, and again, and then on the, the top topic, I think uh, you and I talked about um, mobile hotspots because uh, it was about the same time that the FCC announced uh, the, um the lifeline programs and, uh, and and changes and so forth but what what's your thinking on the um the mobile hotspots because i know that a number of libraries have gone just bonkers over it and think it's a great thing and lots of people have been given to their um have been given those those hotspots yeah
1: well i i love it uh i think it's a great uh, technology and it's a great value to the consumers um, and, and I think it provides that nice kind of transition that you were talking about earlier too. It gets people familiar, it gets them hooked, it gets them to experience the benefits. Um, I think the question is: Is it a long-term uh, solution? Um, I think most of the libraries that have done this have been getting funding to support the costs. Um, so I'm not sure that it's a sustainable on its own on its own merit. So. Is there? Do we need to continue to find new funding to continue these programs going? I think is the only question that I have. Right,
0: and and that makes sense. Um, you know, I did when I did my library report in August, God. When did I do it? Um, March. Uh, that was that was the the um, recommendation of a number of other folks. Is that it's a it's an ad- more than adequate short-term solution that can move people forward, and um, while you're building other, um, either you know fiber or you know point to multi point or whatever, um, it's a definitely a clear you know win for the consumers on the short end, and you know to get us over the hurdle, as I guess, as it were.
1: Right, right. I totally agree.
0: So in wrapping up, we've got about uh, two minutes. Um, What do you think is going to be, I don't know, the assessment of where we are when we come to the end of this year? You know, what what do you think is going to be the the main, you know, shining point that people can kind of all look at and say, It's great that we did this. What would this be in two minutes?
1: Well, my uh, uh, focus is on the anchor institutions, of course, and I see that we've made enormous progress in connecting schools and libraries, but gosh, there's still an awful lot of schools that don't have adequate broadband and libraries as well. Um, mm-hmm. our, according to Education Superhighways, something like uh, 41% of schools still don't have uh, broadband capability up to the recommendations, the, the, the standards that CETA sets and that the FCC adopted. And 42% mm-hmm. of libraries are still have less than a, a 10 megabit connection when really they should have 50 or 100 megabit connections. So, uh, and the health clinics, as we talked about, they're really lagging, um, thirty four there's a 34% gap between rural health clinics and urban health clinics in terms of their broadband capabilities. So, there's quite a bit of work left to do. Uh, probably the rural areas that are lagging, that's going to be tougher to solve those problems than the the urban and suburban anchor institutions. So it's going to take a concerted effort and probably take some more funding in order to make sure that they're connected. But it's doable. You know, we, we have made okay. progress. We're on, the right, we're on the right road. And
0: I will take that as a definite win. Um, we're out of time, but it's been great catching up and seeing where things are going. And also just being able to take a, an assessment of where uh, the wins are. You know, because we definitely have a few of those. And so uh, I appreciate your time and your insights and hope to do this again sometime soon.
1: Same here, Craig. I look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you.
0: All righty. Take care. And to uh, to our audience, thank you very much as well for being here. And we will be back again next week. Take care. Bye-bye ta da